Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are talking about the mind of a bee, specifically their thoughts, memories, and personalities. Those are interesting words to apply to an insect, but as you're going to hear today, they couldn't be more accurate. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Stephen Buckman. He is a pollination ecologist, and he has recently written a book called What a Bee Knows, and it is a phenomenal and enjoyable read that summarizes so much complex science in such an approachable way about the thoughts, memories, and personalities of bees. Dr. Buckman puts a lot of effort into making this stuff understandable, and it is going to blow your mind in some form or another. If you think you know bees, think again. Pick up this book. You're going to learn so much more. Before we get to that, I just want to say, if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting it. You can do that in a lot of different ways. For instance, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. There's a lot of different styles out there, and so there's something that's going to work for you. Just go check out the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast. It is an excellent way to ensure this show has a future. But that is entirely enough out of me. Let's get on with it, because this is such a great episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Buckman. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Stephen Buckman, welcome to the podcast, and it is an honor to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you today, but for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. Uh, well, I'm a bee guy, I guess actually a bee and plant guy, so that makes me what I call a pollination ecologist. Nice. And I'm at the University of Arizona here in Tucson in the Sonoran Desert. And I like to go out in the deserts and, well, actually tropics too. So I guess that makes me sort of a bipolar ecologist. <laughs> so I like the hot, dry places and the stinky, hot, wet places. Nice. Um, but yeah, I like to figure out when something visits a flower, whether it's a visitor uh, of no consequence. I mean, there can be pollen robbers mm. or whether it's a legitimate bee pollinator that uh, out there doing her thing properly. Excellent. Well, you've already given us some food for thought, but just in the, the sense of curiosity, where did this begin for you? Were you kind of an insect person or just general nature nut and then fell into it? Or was it sort of a career shift or, or, or something you learned along the way through education or working? Yeah. I mean, I probably knew in about the third or fourth grade that I wanted to be a biologist. And <laughs> by high school, I had started to work with bees, mainly honeybees. Had one one nasty experience where I was trying to get some honey out of a feral a wild honeybee colony in a shed. Ooh. And my buddy and I thought, hey, it would be a cool thing to do on kind of a drizzly Southern California day with really bad equipment like poor veils. And I think I was wearing black socks too. Eesh. And uh, once we got the first board off, they just attacked. Uh, everybody was inside. So <laughs> instead of out on a nice sunny day foraging. So I think I got over a hundred stings on Ooh. each leg. So Ow. that was exciting, but did not keep me from working on bees. But yeah. even though I was a federal bee research scientist here in Tucson for about 22 years at one of the largest honeybee labs in the country, my first love are still the other unsung heroines of pollination. So, you know, we have almost 4,000 species of native bees in the U.S., about 1,200 in my state uh, in wow. Arizona. So 
Really a lot of bees. And if, if you look at it globally, we've got about 21,000 species of bees. So pretty diverse. Yeah, it's remarkable. And I'm glad, you know, more and more in the kind of common public sphere, we're seeing conversations around those different types of bees, or at least that there's a wider diversity out there. Not to denigrate the honeybee, I love me some honey. But you've already <laughs> put us on a track of something really interesting here. And it's this idea that just because a bee has visited a flower doesn't necessarily mean it's a pollinator. And that is something that I know a lot of people come up against time and time again and go, huh? How can that be? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are lots and lots of floral visitors out there, not just bees, but among other insects, you've got flies, beetles, wasps, butterflies, moths, all kinds of different insects. And then among the vertebrates, you've got hummingbirds, nectar-feeding bats. In South Africa and Australia, you've actually got some rodents that are pollinators, <laughs> and uh, there's even a lizard in the mix. So there's a gecko <laughs> on an island off the coast of New Zealand that's a... Uh, legitimate pollinator of New Zealand flax. But if, if we go back to the bees, you know, let's take a honeybee or a bumblebee, something that most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. The female is, she goes out and she forages and she's trying to bring food back for the nest, basically to feed her progeny, whether she's a single, uh, a solitary bee, I like to call them, single moms with families to feed. Uh, they're doing their own thing, or whether they're one of 20,000 sisters in a honeybee colony. Mm -hmm. And so they're bringing back pollen, which is basically gametes, like plant sperm, but happens to be an incredibly nutritious food for the bees. It's their main food. So they get fats and vitamins and minerals and proteins and amino acids out of that. And then they're sugar junkies, so they go to the nectar, and that's pretty much their flight fuel. But other bees, for example, when I worked in the tropics, like at the uh, Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, there are bees called stingless bees, and they don't have an active sting. But some of them are legitimate pollinators, but others will just go, they're small, they're sort of the, the size of a housefly, and they will land on an anther, and they'll literally use their mandibles to bite into even unopened anthers and steal the pollen. Whoa. And they're small enough so that they don't make contact with the uh, stigma. So huh. I would consider those pollen thieves or <laughs> robbers. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a wild world. But, you know, one thing that I love talking to pollination ecologists about is the process. And getting to know pollination ecologists over the years, I my, my hat is off because it is not simple work. But the key to it is really spending that time observing a bee's behavior on a plant and then kind of tracking that and, and expanding from there. So, you know, for you, it must be hours of observation to get at the root of, of some of this behavior and, and pollination ecology mechanisms, right? Yeah. Sometimes our work is purely observational. Sometimes we have fancy like infrared, break the beam kind of bee counters, hmm. something we might want to talk about a little bit later, which is one of my favorite topics of buzz pollination. Yeah, I actually record the sounds that bees make to sonicate the pollen out of flowers. So it can be pretty high tech, but, but most of it is a little bit frustrating in terms of a lot of times the temporal window for when the flower you're studying is in bloom or when the bees are active. It might only be two or three weeks a year. And I don't know that I've ever finished a study <laughs> in one season. Jeez, yeah. So, you know, I look back at this stuff and go, wow, 
I'm just submitting the paper to the journal now, and I started it five years ago. So (laughs) (laughs) a lot of these things can be uh, long-term commitments. And and these days, they're usually a team of a professor and his or her students or, you know, a a group of colleagues. I'm, for example, right now involved with a group uh, of scientists from Cornell and University of Wisconsin and several UC campuses looking at the brood cell microbiome. So basically, we are extracting DNA from the larval food, the pollen and nectar that the larval bees eat, and by getting uh, sampling bee, bee stomachs, basically. And, and we're finding out that, hey, just like people, bees need helpful, mutualistic hmm. bacteria and fungi, sort of a probiotic microbiome. So we're actually figuring out that some bees are only kept healthy and happy when they have the right bacteria in their guts or in the brood cell pantries that they're feeding their larvae. Wow. That is amazing work. And and again, it's it's you kind of see the steps in this process, how much it's evolved over the years. And you're author of many publications and many books as well. But you know, when you think about how you translate some of this pretty technical stuff, often a lot of years, as you say, in the process of trying to understand one system, let alone multiple systems and all the photography and stuff that goes with it. What made you want to write What a Bee Knows? This is an incredible book exploring the thoughts, memories, and personalities of bees. I mean, where did where you've, you've written a lot of different books. What made you suddenly go, okay, it's time to talk about bee behavior and, and the way bees think yeah. and envision the world? I I wanted to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. Even though I'm a pollination ecologist and I do quite a bit with bee behavior, I haven't been involved with some of the nitty-gritty neurobiology. Mm. Um, I've done some work in a foraging arena that we have at the University of Arizona where we have bumblebee colonies that are connected to this arena, and then we can offer them um, like artificial flowers with different colors, shapes, and scents, that sort of thing, and gauge their reactions. But uh, I really wanted to tell a different story. So in the book, I start out comparing and contrasting how bees have an entirely different sensory physiology. So they perceive the world through their vision, their taste, their smell, their touch, somewhat similar to us. For example, for taste, they can taste sweet, salt, bitter, that sort of thing. For smell, they probably end up being about maybe 100 times more sensitive than our nose um, through sensors on their antennae. But for vision, because most bees only have about, uh, well, even though they have five eyes, they have three little tiny simple eyes that are mainly dealing with light and dark kind of Mm. recognition and their time sense. But their two large compound eyes generally only have about 4,000 or 5,000 what we call omatidial facets. And so each one of these little facets gives the bee a different angle, a different look out at its world. And then just like us, the bee's brain puts it together and and forms an image. Um, (laughs) This is often called kind of a mosaic vision, not quite right. But the main thing is that the their vision is much, much worse than ours. Interesting. Their vision is about 160th the acuity or resolution of ours. So, huh. A bee doesn't even recognize a flower until it comes up to it and it's maybe six to ten inches away. And it's only at that distance that they can sort of determine the the critical shape and colors. Wow. It's wild. But even the subtitle, when you think about exploring thoughts, memories, and personalities of bees. Now, a lot of people listening are on board. They understand animals are complex things. But there's going to be people out there that hear this and go, I thought insects were just kind of these little automatons. But 
even in right. the beginning, you've kind of hinted at that, like what a bee does at a flower can be different. And, and there is hints of behavior there, but like thoughts and memories, it really expands the world of how complex, despite being small, these organisms truly are. Yeah. I mean, the bees are, are really clever. They can recognize shapes, not just flower shapes, but it was demonstrated in a, in a study a few years ago that uh, bees can recognize different human faces. <laughs> what? Uh, so that, <laughs> but that was interesting. So I wow. guess if you're a beekeeper and you're nasty <laughs> to your bees and next time you go out and you get get stung now you know why they they recognize you you're oh he's coming back it's that one again get him yeah <laughs> wow yeah just just amazing they have memories that can last for three or four days hmm. bees do sleep uh they have kind of a sleep posture they have different sleep postures and their antennae sort of twitch in a little rhythm and that is almost like sort of the our eyeballs under our eyelids in in REM sleep so wow so bees are actually consolidating memories just like we do during our sleep huh. yeah and when you think of like what bees are doing on the landscape it's not just randomly bumping into things and going oh look a flower let's feast you know they're, they're you, you start to piece together the research and, and think about what you observe even if you're not observing them hardcore they, they have to find these things they have to if they're social communicate that to others to make foraging more efficient or just find their nests again, even if they're not eusocial bees. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the bees are so small relative to their floral environment outdoors. I think it would be sort of like us going out to the store, except the grocery store is like a thousand miles per a thousand <laughs> miles away and you don't have GPS. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. So when you see a bee leave her nest, they fly out and they do these little back and forth zigzags. And so these loops get higher and higher. And what the bees are doing is literally memorizing the landmarks around their nest. Mm. They're also cueing in on things that we can't perceive. Like bees can perceive areas of polarization, lights and darks in the, uh, in the zodiac in a blue sky. Wow. So even if it's a cloudy day and the sun is obscured by clouds, even if there's a tiny hole in the clouds, that polarized light gives them the ability to navigate and know exactly where the sun is. So they, they also have a really great time sense using those, those perceptions. So there was a famous experiment that the late, great Carl von Frisch in Germany did, and he would set out little feeding tables in meadows in Austria. And at certain times of the day, he would provide rewards. And then the next day, um, bees would come out at pretty much exactly the same time. So he didn't really need to ring the dinner dinner bell. They already knew <laughs> from their little floral clock, internal time sense, when it was time to go out and get the food. Wow. And and that's what's happening in nature too, because, right, we've got flowers that open up only in the morning. We've got some flowers that open up only in the afternoon. And bees and other pollinators are really cued into that. There are even some bees that are nocturnal that will visit flowers at night under a full mm. moon. And that that happens with a genus called Megalopta that's common in Panama. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like everything's possible in the tropics. But, I mean, it's phenomenal to think about the amount of effort that's gone in to try to understand this. And as you said, this book kind of forced you to go outside of your comfort zone. You're a pollination ecologist, but no single career could tackle all of the different facets you've covered here. 
And it almost feels like what you've done with this book, What a Bee Knows, is is a really digestible and fun and fascinating literature review. I mean, it's a meta-analysis of a lot of various angles of research. And so it, it, it must have really enriched the scientific side of what you do, let alone the wonder you definitely have just for the natural world and how bees fit into it. Yeah, it really did. I was able to research this. I wrote it during the early part of the pandemic, basically, and uh, it forced me to read papers that I <laughs> heard about but never read or using my favorite tool, uh, Google Scholar. Yeah. I would uh, uh, say anybody who wants to get into the scientific literature, there's almost no better way to do it. So you can put in an author's name or keyword with a plant or animal name and in Google Scholar, and pretty soon you're in the hardcore primary literature, uh, which might be pretty scary. Yeah. But on the other hand, a lot of these articles, even some of the most erudite ones, have a uh, abstract that's meant to be uh, summarized in, in more, more common terms. Now, as a pollination ecologist, you know, you have your set of methods that you like to use. You sometimes get to branch out, try new things. But when it comes to trying to understand like how a bee perceives the world, I mean, to me, that seems like almost an unforeseeable challenge in the way that, you know, is my red the same color as your red? That kind of question. It, it seems to get into deep philosophy, but it, 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 you know, when you start to really tease it apart, it seems like, no, we, we figured out a lot of really interesting things about neurology and, and the memory that through very clever experimentation bears fruit. Yeah. I mean, even back into the 1950s, physiologists were figuring out that, well, or originally bees were thought to be colorblind. Hmm. And von Frisch got into some really heated arguments with some of his <laughs> colleagues about that. But he, he took a kind of checkerboard square on, on his table, his food table. And so you had different brightnesses, but no colors immediately displayed. So you had different you know shades of gray from light gray to dark gray. And then he put one blue square with the food on it. And the bees were trained to that blue. And then later he could mix up all the squares and take the food away. And they they found the blue. So clearly they were seeing a color. And long story short, he and others determined that all bees, just like humans, have a trichromatic, a three primary color based color system. So, you know, for humans, it's red, green, blue, but for bees, it was green, blue, ultraviolet. Mm. And unless we're a human infant, three months old or less, or you're a um, a phasic or something, a phasic, uh, someone who has had their uh, lens of their eye modified, hmm. you, we can't see ultraviolet, basically. So it gives us a sunburn, but um, <laughs> we can't see it. But we can use some technological tools and some science guy tricks, if you like. So basically, you can take a video camera or even a smartphone and put the right filter over it. So you can put a filter that blocks the visible wavelengths from like 400 to 700 nanometers, but lets the UV like 300 to 400 nanometers through. Hmm. And now basically you've created bee vision. So <laughs> a lot of times I will put different filters over fancy quartz lenses on my single lens reflex and be able to visualize patterns in the flowers. So, for example, if you look at a uh, sunflower or a black-eyed Susan, those long, narrow ray petals that are at the edges look to be a uniform yellow color to us, but not so for the bee. So, generally, near the base, there's kind of a, a bullseye, 
And so that will be absorbing ultraviolet, but reflecting yellow. And so that gives a color that the insect physiologists call bees purple. I they don't that. really know what that looks like. <laughs> but now, instead of having a sunflower with a uniformly yellow petal, it's actually bees purple in the center and then yellow to the outside. So, And you can play nasty little bee scientist tricks on the bees. So <laughs> when, when the bee comes walking along, and it detects that ultraviolet guide, it will stick out its tongue, its proboscis, and probe for the nectar. So you can take and reverse the petals and glue them in place in an opposite way, and pretty soon the bees are walking over the real nectar, but they go out to the petal tips and start looking for it there. So it is this little calling card or director saying, hey, it's right here, but... Yeah, I, I love seeing those images. You know, you can post them up and, and wow, the world is more complex than we've ever imagined. But you made a good point there. That isn't exactly what bees are seeing. It's our version of it or the way we have to make it appear so that we can perceive it. But it is by no means necessarily how the bee is seeing it. No, we can make some educated guesses, but really we'll never be able to get inside bee, bee heads to figure out exactly how they experience the world. There was a famous essay written decades ago where a person is proposing that, well, what's, what's it like for a bat to fly around and forage and echolocate, basically shouting in ultrasound and getting those reflected uh, sound waves back? And, you know, really, we really don't know. Right. Uh, so just like for those bats, we don't know what it would be like. I, I often think, well, as I was writing the book, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool to be dropped into a bee body for about, <laughs> you know, five minutes? And then I thought, no, that would probably be terrifying. Yeah. You need a few weeks, I think, just to kind of orient and get ready for what you're about to experience. And then someone would probably swat you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Some entomologist would come along oh, like no. me with a net and, and catch me. Although, hey, that that could be a pretty good uh, Hollywood sci-fi movie, basically, that somebody is... uh, Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Somebody goes inside a uh, bee or other insect brain and goes around (laughs) and experiences through all the uh, tricks of uh, CGI to figure out what the world looks like. There you go. You heard it here first, people. Yeah. Credit where credit is due if that script gets written. But, you know, thinking about behavior and you brought up buzz pollination. So one observation I've enjoyed is walking out into my garden and seeing one type of bee. I don't know what type of bee will visit a variety of flowers, but it seems like when they get to a dodecathion flower, a primula flower or a tomato flower, they suddenly know, hey, this morphology means I got to vibrate. To me, it seems like that would be a specialist thing, but it seems like a few different bees have figured it out. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, and it's something that I started studying basically as a college undergrad, and I've kept it out throughout my professional career. So that nice. there are about 8 to 10% of the world's, let's say, 350,000 species of flowering plants that don't have normal anthers. I mean, the normal anther, think of a uh, Easter lily or something, and all that nasty orange pollen drops <laughs> on your linen tablecloth. Or you, you can take your fingers and get it off, and it's gritty. I mean, it's like a fine, oily powder. Tomato blossoms, you, you mentioned one of my all-time favorites, Dodecathion. That's really a cool one. Uh, it turns out there are, that there are some crops that are really, really important economically and to keep us fed with nutrient-dense foods that we like. So things like blueberries, cranberries, tomatoes, kiwi fruit, eggplant, mm. 
all of those require buzz pollination. And not all bees can do it. I mean, there are several thousand bees that can, but for example, honeybees cannot. We don't know why. Hmm. Bumblebees quite commonly do it. Also the big black uh, carpenter bees, uh, many, many ground nesting bees. So a female recognizes the shape and as it turns out, the scent, kind of a contact scent on those anthers. And I never would have believed it, but a few years ago, my colleagues and I proved that when we had totally naive bees coming out of our bumblebee colonies, uh, I mean, it's easy these days. You can just go online or pick up a phone and order a colony of bumblebees. And <laughs> in two or three days, you've got your bees in a box. And then you just put them in the lab and take care of them. Wow. So we took naive bees that had never seen a flower in their life, any kind of flower. And I thought, wow, this is going to take them dozens of tries to walk around and try to figure out where the little holes are. I mean, on a tomato blossom, think of the five anthers as your five fingers, and each fingertip has one or two holes. So it's like a salt shaker, and the mm. pollen grains are the salt. And the only way you can get the pollen out is to shake it like crazy. And so little did we know, we started watching these, we had our video cameras going. On the first or second visit, these bees knew instinctively, innately, to vibrate. Wow. And that blew me away. So it did not have to be a learned behavior at all. Wow. But then once once a female gets on those flowers, they bite into it with their mandibles, their jaws, they hang on for dear life, and they use the power plant of the flight muscles inside their thorax. And the wings don't move, but they sit there and they shiver. And it's like the bees have turned into a living tuning fork. And all the pollen grains, all the tens of thousands of pollen grains, come out those holes in the form of a cloud in just a matter of a few tenths of a second. And they hit the bee. And then the bee, either in midair or by hanging on by one leg, grooms all that pollen off, packs it onto her hind legs, and then flies home with it. It's remarkable to watch. And if you get it in the right light, you can almost see that spray of pollen coming out when they're intensely vibrating. But I, I've seen this communicated in the past and I just, you know, shame on me for not following up on it. But is it a specific frequency or is it a range of frequencies? Like, is it to the tune of C or something like that? Or, or <laughs> a lot of different vibrations will do it. <laughs> yeah. When I first got into it as a college, college undergrad, I was making some recordings and analyzing the frequencies on some pretty primitive by our standards equipment. <laughs> and I was expecting that, hey, there must be this magic frequency, you know, it's going to be 255 hertz, 255 cycles per second. But it's not really, it's a fairly broad range. So from about 100 to 500 cycles per second. Um, so there are some musical notes that are very good. So we have uh, what is a musical A, like 440, middle C, I think is 512, something like that. So in that range, you get the right sort of frequency. But now our lab and some colleagues in England and different places have determined that the frequency is not a as important hmm. as the shaking. So basically the ampl amplitude, the strength of the shaking and the duration. So if you can shake one of those flowers really hard and for a decent amount of time, then the frequency's less important. Hmm. Fascinating. I love that though. But the most amazing thing to me about all of this is, you know, selective breeding 
for our standards, is something people can get their head wrapped around pretty easily. We've got a whole horticultural trade devoted to it. But when you go out into the world and you see plants in the wild, you know, it's not always bees, but it's some form of pollinator has shaped that floral structure over time, over evolutionary time, the selection for that. And and the idea that, you know, oh man, bees were thought to be colorblind or just the way our perception has evolved makes the complexity of these floral shapes, sizes, structures, colors, textures, so much more special because you, you really do get a, a weird window into the mind of what triggers the bee's sensory perception. If again, indeed it is a bee that is the pollinator, but you know, as we talked about there, a bee will go from, you know, an aster and then jump over to uh, a tomato flower, do well with that and then jump back onto like a, a tulip or something like that. And the idea that bees are shaping all of this variety in a big way is just so phenomenal to me. And that's where I think the whole pollination ecology thing comes back together is, is like plants are offering bees something they need and bees are shaping them in the process in order to try to obtain that. And then you got that tug of war of it not always being a, a kumbaya symbiotic relationship. It's just so incredible. Yeah. And that's one thing I have in, in one chapter in my book. And I basically say, you know, is this a, uh, a love story or an arms race? <laughs> and, yeah, I think out there, most people think, oh, you know, the, the bees are going to the flowers and everything's really, really happy. Um, <laughs> you know, a, a female bee, whether it's a honeybee or a bumblebee, doesn't wake up in the morning and check its to-do list and go, oh, no, I've got to pollinate 10,000 <laughs> flowers today. I'm going to go on strike. But they're, they're not, <laughs> not doing a good turn daily for plants, even though plants are rooted and uh i guess unless you're a prom corsage you can't get up and go on a date <laughs> so you need these you need this volant bestiary you need bees wasps flies butterflies to move those gametes around for you from plant to plant or sometimes from flower to flower on the same plant but it's better genetically if they're moved between unrelated genetically right. unrelated plants just like the reason it's not so good for us to marry a first cousin and have kids. Yeah, go to the next valley. Don't stay in your valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so so I did want to mention one thing that you said earlier. The, the bees do have different sensibilities, and so do we. So, for example, there's huge global industry around the world with plant breeders making fancy flowers, fancy shapes, uh, maybe... maybe doubled or quadruple petaled flowers that we like. But oftentimes when they're doing that, and they're not doing that out of spite, they're not trying to create frankenflowers, but sometimes they do. Mm. So a lot of times modern hybrid flowers, they might be a blue ribbon winner, you know, at the Chelsea flower show in England. But um, when the bees or butterflies go out there to visit them, they show up and there may be little or no pollen and it's often very uh very much true that there's no nectar so they can right. yeah, i mean you, you can literally as a homeowner spend a fortune on fancy modern hybrid plants that you get at the nursery plant them trying to create a pollinator garden but you're really doing a disservice to the pollinators because you should actually be using native plants that are cheaper to maintain they're adapted to your local soils and climates and you know if you're putting in <clears throat> hybrid flowers you 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 know, might be creating a floral desert where really it looks beautiful to us right? and is attractive to the bees, but 
really there's not a lot of uh, nectar and pollen present. Yeah, it's a shame. I once watched a wasp, albeit not a bee, uh, but a wasp crawling all over a like quadruple flower camellia flower. Like it could smell something was there, but there was nothing for it. It was actually really sad to watch. So that's a a really great tidbit of information for people that, again, maybe want to try to do the right thing, but need that little extra push of knowledge to go, no, this is, there's, there's better ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I would just advise people to try to find a, a nursery or, you know, buy some seeds and plant them that are right. native plants that are adapted to grow in your, your local area. Well, another sad thing that happens with major, especially national nurseries that have national distributions is that a lot of times they will put insecticides in the potting soil and it's sort of like a slow release thing. So basically with these um, insecticides, they become incorporated into the tissues of the plant. And so then when pollinators show up, they can be bringing home poisonous, toxic pollen and nectar. So that that's not good either. Yeah, that's where being a smart consumer comes into play. Do your homework, ask questions. If people don't know, maybe err on the side of caution or get it from a more trusted source. Right. Right. So with that in mind, I mean, picking up a copy of What a Bee Knows is a great place to really expand your pollinator knowledge. Uh, Where do you recommend people go looking to pick up a copy of this incredible book so that they can learn everything we've talked about today and so much more? Yeah. um, Your local independent bookstores. It's out there in a lot of places. Um, If you like the larger chains, it's at Barnes and Noble and Hey, you can even find it on Amazon. Yeah. Well, I'll put up a link on at least bookshop, I think is the uh, sort of the ethical choice there. But uh, Dr. Buckman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this, but also thank you for taking the time to write this book. Like I said, it is an amazingly wonderful read and a great source of information. It's basically a digestible lit review uh, for anyone looking to learn more about bee behavior and, and thoughts and memories. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I didn't want to scare people away with all the end notes. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to use them at all, but if you're intrigued on a certain page and you see a little uh, superscript number, you can go to the back of the book and, like I said, go to Google Scholar or something like that and, and actually read the read the primary literature. So Indeed. You can either do it as a quick superficial read or you can dive deeper awesome well thank you again we really appreciate your time yeah it was great thank you so much for having me on your program yeah cheers all right phenomenal stuff i can't recommend this book enough once again it's called what a bee knows exploring the thoughts memories and personalities of bees there's so much great information in here and it is presented in such an enjoyable way it is a book you won't want to put down i promise you that And it is important to mention that if you go to the Island Press website to pick up a copy of this book, you can enter the promo code BEES, B-E-E-S in all caps, to receive 20% off your order. I will save you the time of remembering that or writing it down by putting a link in the show notes in this episode. Just check out indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to do just that. Once again, I thank Dr. Buckman for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I recommend you check out all of his other books. I will put a link to his website in the show notes as well. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. If you want to support the show, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. One of the best ways is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's a lot of great kickbacks over there, and my patrons are truly what make this show possible. But you can also pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers, and all of those links are in the show notes as well. I sound like a broken record, but please consider supporting the show because I couldn't be doing it without your support. 
Otherwise, make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But that is it for me. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.